So I've been hearing about you, and so it's a, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Um, before we dive into the text, I just want to pause one second and say this. You know, as a pastor, I don't come on my own authority this morning or, or come standing on my own wisdom. As the people of God, we stand on this ironclad conviction. God speaks. He speaks through nature and creation, but more than that, and in a far more authoritative and clear way, he speaks through his word. You know, we live in a culture that's highly skeptical of scripture, and yet, what does scripture say? What are we told? All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. Um, and Peter writes that we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we were eyewitnesses, and then more than that, he says, no prophecy comes about from someone's interpretation. He says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And, and so when we gather here and we open up the word, we're not gathering to hear the wisdom of some guy from Medfield. We're opening up the word of God and hearing what he has to say to us as the people of God. Um, and so with kind of that that introductory thought, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Acts 2. We're going to be looking at Acts um, 2, 37 to the end of the chapter. And as you're doing that, I just want to invite you to get a simple question in your mind. What are the marks of a healthy church? What marks, what characterizes a healthy church? When things are the way they should be, what what is distinct? What is present? What characterizes it? That's the thing we're going to be looking at as we open up this passage. And so I'd like to invite you to listen as I read the word of the Lord from Acts 2. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, from whom the Lord our God will call. For, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. This is a pretty amazing passage when you think about it. It gives us a picture of what a church looks like when it is healthy, when it's thriving, when the Holy Spirit is moving. And it makes us ask a question, what should mark the life of a church? You know, this is a question that Christians throughout the ages have wrestled with. You know, great minds in the halls of academia, in beautiful churches like this, 
and pastors in small towns in places like Haiti and Kenya and China. You know, it's a question that's worth wrestling with for any number of reasons. You know, first, the church is called to be a counterculture. You know, I know when some people hear the word counterculture, they think of, you know, the, the hippies in the 60s and, um, you know, how they were encouraged to tune, turn on, tune in, and drop out. And for some, they go in another direction. They think of people like Martin Luther King and the brave African-American leaders who stood and fought against segregation and fought for civil rights. You know, but whether we've got a negative or positive idea in our mind, when you actually think about it, a counterculture is simply a cultural group whose values and norms of behavior deviate from those of the mainstream of society, often in opposition to mainstream cultural mores. They're a group whose values run against the tide of culture. And to be a Christian is to be somebody who's called to be part of God's counterculture against the tide of the world. We're a community that's called not to align by the values of our culture, but by the values of Scripture. And I, I jokingly say that makes some people look, makes us look a little Democrat and a little Republican all at the same time. And you know that you're following Christ and you're hitting where you're supposed to be when you're bothering everybody a little bit for the glory of God. Too often we fail to be this, but that's what we're called to be. Along with that, there's another reason to dive into this. Too often, you know, the church doesn't actually stop and, and think biblically about what a church is called to be. We, we tip our hats in the direction of the Bible and quickly engage with the business models of the world when thinking about the church and what we're trying to build. I love that uh, Smith has said that you know, they're always asking, are they people of the word? And, and that's their hope, that you're people of the word, because that's where we're called to be. There, there's another reason that we're looking at this passage, though, and, and this is actually the reason. So, you know, you're invited to speak at a friend's church, and so you say, well, I could teach on this, I could open up that, uh, and, I, and I laid out some ideas for Rennie, and his response to this one was, ooh, so we're going here. <laughs> so I want to ask, what marks a healthy church when it's thriving? This passage gives us a snapshot it comes at the tail end of the day of Pentecost. Some of you are probably going, okay, what's Pentecost? Pentecost was the day that the Holy Spirit came down on the church. So the Gospels give us what happens in the life of Christ. Acts gives us what happens after as the church moves from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. And on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended, he's told the disciples that they're going to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then he tells them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes, and what happens? They come out, they're filled with the ability to speak in other languages. And so they come out, they're speaking the language of Medes and Parthians and, and all these different languages. And, and some people are just awed, and other people say, what, are these guys drunk and... Peter gets up and says, no, it's like nine in the morning. And he starts to lay out the gospel. He starts to preach. He talks about who Christ is and what he's done. And what happens? 
3,000 people get saved in one day. Now, this is a preacher's dream and nightmare all rolled together in one. You know, you think about what would happen to Glad Tidings Church if 3,000 people got saved at this church next week. That'd be awesome, right? Except your Sunday school's going to be swamped to overflowing. Poor Rennie's not going to be able to keep up with counseling. And you're all going to suddenly be drafted into leadership roles and given like 10 things to do on top of whatever else you do in your life. Because it's all hands on deck suddenly, right? So it's a, it's a dream and a nightmare all rolled together. And yet, because the Holy Spirit is moving, because the Holy Spirit is working, we see that it's not a train wreck. In fact, we get a snapshot of the church when it's at its very healthiest. It's very healthiest. And so what do we see? What marks this church? What we see when we look at this and what we see when we think about the church even today is that we see seven key marks of a healthy church. This passage shows us that a healthy church is marked by gospel centrality, devotion to doctrinal teaching, Devotion to vibrant, loving fellowship, devotion to worship, devotion to prayer, devotion to generous deeds of mercy, and devotion to faithful evangelism. There's a lot here. And you know, actually, when you dive into the rest of Scripture, you see other marks as well. You know, the list keeps growing. You know, sometimes we're like, well, I just want two or three things. Actually, Scripture's deep and rich, and it calls us to deep and rich life together. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but but it's one of the best that we see in Scripture. And the first thing that we see is that the foundation of the church is gospel centrality. This is the thing that centers and shapes a church. Everything else that we're going to see in this passage flows out of the fact that Christ came and lived and died and rose. And that centers and shapes us and makes us new creations. You know, the, the church is made up of people who have been born again. And when you look at this passage, you see that this idea runs all through here. And you see Peter, he stands up, he preaches, he lays out the gospel. And then he says that when, when people respond and say, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Okay, what's repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin. Being baptized, baptism is the step of entrance into the Christian life. You know, you you get baptized as a way of saying to the world around, I'm a follower of Christ. It's an inward, it's an outward expression of an inward reality. And so Peter invites them to do that. But then what are we told? What does he say? He keeps going. We're told that with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. What's he saying with that? He's saying that we aren't just saved individually. We're saved into something. We're saved from sin into the body of Christ that's gathered around the gospel. You know, you think about what a generation is. What's a generation? A generation is actually a It's almost a distinct people, if you think about it. You know, think about the different generations that we can look at, just, just looking back over our history. You know, the, the greatest generation. They were shaped by a set of experiences, and so that, 
that makes them, they had one set of personality types. And then the baby boomers were shaped by something else. And then Gen X, what were, Gen X was shaped by 9-11, the Challenger, the Clinton years, for good and ill. My kids are being shaped by iPhones and technology. I mean, you, you get a, a, gr a group of youth group kids together and take away their iPhones and smartphones of all kinds and see what happens. They don't know what to do. My wife would take away their phones at youth group and the one with the lowest battery got to put it on the charger. That was the only way she could get them to give it up. But they were just, they're shaped by these things. And what Peter is saying is that we're called, be saved from this corrupt generation. He's saying we're being called from a generation, from a people group, from a people that are, are shaped by the thinking of the world. And notice when he says corrupt generation, he's not saying this particular group of people at that time were corrupt. He's saying that the world is corrupted. You know, what's the, what's the story of the world? The story of the world is God made us perfect. God made the world perfect. And then what happens? Adam and Eve rebel. In their pride, they say, you know, we think we know better than you, God. And they eat of the fruit, and they bring sin, suffering, and death into the world. And what Peter says, when he uses the word corrupt, he actually uses a word that, um, from which we get scoliosis. Um, it's the word, Greek word scolia. And so if you think of, a, of somebody that has scoliosis in their back, it's twisted and marred, right? You know, it's not straight. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And what Peter is saying is, this world, as it stands, is broken and marred by sin. And every single one of our lives is broken and marred by sin. And we need to be saved from that. And you know, this is a, a, an idea that our culture doesn't love. They say, no, we're not sinful by nature. The world is not broken by nature. And yet, we know that the things are not the way they are supposed to be. You take this beautiful building. What happens if you leave it alone for five years? The roof's going to start leaking. The walls are going to start to paint and chip, or it's barbecue season. What happens if you take a, you, you get out your grill, you make this wonderful steak, and it's, it's beautiful, it's yummy, it's, I guarantee you, if you open up that steak, it's rare and perfect. Now, what happens if you leave it on the counter for an hour? You've ruined it. What happens if you leave it for a, a week? You've got a health crisis, right? That's the state of the world, naturally. And what Peter is saying is that Christ stepped out of heaven and became a man and he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died to put the world right. And so we're not just saved individually. He's actually creating something new, a people that will announce that the reality of what God is doing. He's restoring all things through the gospel. And this is the heartbeat of our churches. If this is not the center of a church's life, we might as well all go home. This is the, the, AB, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z. This is the thing that is, is at the center of our life. And out of that flows everything else. So my encouragement to you today, 
I don't know you. This is my first time to be with you. Some of you are probably here as guests. If you don't know Christ, my encouragement to you is start looking at the gospel. There's real powerful reasons to trust Christ. First of all, it's the reality of the brokenness of the world. You can see that the world is not as it should be. But more than that, it's the reality of what Christ did. He came, he lived the life you should have lived and died in your place and for your sins and then rose. And he didn't just rise spiritually. It wasn't like some, oh, the disciples thought they saw something. And what's, what happens in the upper room? Thomas is like, I don't believe this stuff. Jesus shows up and says, touch me. I know you don't believe it. It's crazy, right? Touch me. The reality is Christ rose, and it's the most trustable, reliable reality from the history of the world. If you go back into history, Simeon Greenleaf, who was the founder of Harvard Law, said it's the, the most verifiable fact in the, from history. And so my encouragement to you is trust Christ. Look at who Christ is. Look at the state of the world, and look at who Christ is. Trust him. That's the first thing that should mark our church. With that is a second thing. Devotion to doctrinal teaching. Devotion to the word. Devotion to doctrinal teaching. When you look at verse 42, you see something. And Peter says, uh, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That word, the apostles' teaching, is actually the, the Greek word didache. It has to do with teaching. It has to do with doctrine. It has to do not just with a specific, or not just with, with random teaching. It's the apostles' teaching. And what it has to do with is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? Paul takes us to the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, what I pass down to you is of first importance. And then he starts walking through the gospel. He starts walking through the fact that we're saved by the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. You know, this is, this is the thing that every church needs to be marked by. And it's, it's this core doctrine, and it's a commitment to the word. You know, so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. All that they taught, which is passed on in what? What, what book, what tool, what gift has God passed on to us? The Bible. If these people were hungry for the word. They devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching. You think of what devotion is. And we know fans of the Red Sox and the Patriots. If the Sox are on, they're watching it. If the Patriots are on, clear out of my basement, lock the kids upstairs, do not bother me, right? We could be like that with our sports. The youth group kids that I've had in my church's youth group, 
They could tell you everything about Black Panther or the next Marvel superhero movie or their favorite TV show. They're almost devoted to it. What this passage says is they devoted themselves to what was passed on by the apostles. And so my encouragement to you today is be people devoted to the word. Be people devoted to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say one of the best gifts you can give your pastor is to be people of the word. Rennie didn't put me up to this, I swear. Be people of the word. Be people committed to the word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Be people of the word. Don't take it lightly. So I got to go to China a couple years ago with um, a program up at Gordon-Conwell. And you heard stories over there of, of how desperate people were for so long to get their hands on the word of God. Most of us have four or five copies kicking around our house. Be people devoted to the word. But then, what else do we see here? When we look at this passage, they weren't just devoted to the word, they were devoted to fellowship. And that's not to be missed. So often, we, t we treat fellowship like it's cookies and juice before or after church and, and a little quick handshake. That's not what they're talking about here. They're talking about being, this passage is talking about they were in each other's lives. They were serious about relationship. They were serious about seeking one another's good. And the word that's used here is koinonia. It has to do with, it, it's actually primarily used in terms of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's a word that's used in relationship to the Trinity. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're invited into relationship with the triune God through the work of Christ. And that brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I look around this room. I have... I'm the oldest of six. I have two brothers who are not followers of Christ. I've never met most of you in this room. And yet, the reality of the gospel is that I have more in common with you because the blood of Christ is a deeper and richer bloodline. And in light of that, how do we relate to each other as followers of Christ? Do we stop off and have cookies and cut out as fast as we can? Do we say, I'm not going to join a church or commit to a church because of the cost and effort and energy that it requires? So often, that's the American mindset. And yet, what we're told right out of the gate is that they devoted themselves to fellowship. With this, they devoted themselves to worship, where it says, the breaking of bread, there's an article there in the Greek. And this is important because what that's telling us is that it's dis different and distinct from in verse 46 where it says that they were breaking bread. And this has to do with communion. The breaking of bread has to do with communion. Communion is worship. It's an act of worship. The Last Supper, Jesus institutes the Lord's table. So they're gathering for worship. They're committing themselves to worship. They're devoting themselves to worship 
the way that a Red Sox fan devotes himself to following the Sox. Except more so. Because what are we told in verse 46? We're told every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere heart. They were committed at a serious and deep and rich level. This is my first time in the church. I've only heard good things from Rennie about this church. And so my question to you, before I move on, is how do you guys relate to each other? Is this true of you? Is the fellowship in this church rich and deep? My encouragement to you is ask, how can it be rich and deep if it's not? And if it is, how can it be richer and deeper? How can this be true of our church together? Keeping in mind that what unites us is the shed blood of Christ. D.A. Carson is a teacher at Trinity. Um, You might want to go back to this. I I put it up. Um, He says that now go back a couple more. It's the D.A. Carson one from the gospel section. There. He says that the church is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. But what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationalities, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because of natural collocation, natural tendencies, but because they've been saved by the blood of Christ. In light of this, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is the church. So my encouragement to you is be people who love one another. Be people who seek each other's good. Be people that are sacrificial in making sure that each each one of the, each member of this church is living in a way that glorifies God. You know, we share our joys, we share our sorrows, We share our heartache. We share life together as the people of God. And that's not to be taken lightly. What else do we see? They're committed to worship and they're committed to prayer. Okay, so I said that one of the best things you can do for, for your pastor is be a person of the word. The most important thing you can do for your pastor is pray for him. And be people of prayer. When God's people get on their knees, God moves. Every single revival from the history of the world has happened when God's people got on their knees. And so what marks a healthy church? What characterizes a healthy church? What should you be striving for? You should be seeking to be people of prayer. You should be committing to be people of prayer. Your response to the gospel should not be to say, oh, I got this in my own strength, but to go before the throne of God and say, look, the reality of the gospel is I'm a mess. I come in as a sinner. I come in as somebody who needs grace. I come in as somebody who recognizes I don't have it all together. I need a savior. Save me, Lord God. Save me. Charles Spurgeon, some of you know the name, some of you don't, is my guess. He's considered the greatest preacher in the history of the English-speaking world. You know what he used to say? 
He used to take people downstairs to his church in the basement. There would be a group of people praying. And here he is the, considered the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world. And he said, this is the power plant of our church. The people of the early church devoted themselves to prayer. And then they devoted themselves with that to meeting the needs of others in a real way. They committed themselves to deeds of mercy. They were devoted to generous deeds of mercy. And this was practical. Think what happened on the day of Pentecost. People from all over the Roman world have come to Rome. They're visiting Rome. And all of a sudden, they become Christians. Now they want to stay. Another way of, of thinking about this is that suddenly the church has a bunch of homeless people they have to take care of. Now they want to stay. And they want to live together with the people of God, which means that the, the members of the church have to sacrificially dig in and give and meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's costly. That's hard. And yet they did it. And you know what the result of that was? Everybody else went, wow. You know, the, the refrain about the early church by the watching Romans was, see how they love one another. See how they love one another. You know, and so often in the American church, we just don't want to be bothered. We have a culture of hyper-individualism in the American culture. No one can call somebody to account. No one can say, you know, you're, what are you doing? We want to check into church and check out as consumers too often. I'm just talking about the American church as a general theme. And we don't want to have somebody impose on us. And yet to be a follower of Christ is to say, Christ was imposed upon. He chose to go to the cross and sacrificially give. And if the foundation of my life is a man sacrificially giving, my response is going to be to pick up the cross and follow him. Then there's one last thing that we see. They were faithful in evangelism. They were devoted to faithful evangelism. What's happening at the end of this? The Lord added to their number daily. They're sharing the gospel. They're announcing what Christ has done. And you know, we live in a culture that gets squeamish about people proselytizing. But look, at the end of the day, evangelism is the fine art of opening your mouth and talking about what is exciting you. People evangelize me all the time about the Red Sox or whatever they're trying to sell me. Evangelism ultimately comes down to talking about the reality of what God has done for you. And that's the thing that is naturally or should naturally be on our hearts. And so you think about it. What do a lot of people talk about? They talk about their kids, right? 
I have a 10-year-old, uh, almost 7-year-old, and an almost 2-year-old who has discovered, since we're move, in the process of moving, that he can climb on boxes. And it's very exciting. He's also discovered that he can climb over the back of the couch. So we had a gate across the, the door into the dining room, and we had an area that used to have French doors that um, we've got a couch across. So he goes up to the couch, over the back of it, hangs himself down, and drops himself down into the dining room where he's not supposed to be. What do you think I end up talking about? I end up talking about stuff like that. I talk about my kids. I talk about the things that are going on that excite me. And that's what the early church did. They talked about what was exciting their hearts. They were excited about the gospel, and so they shared it. So my encouragement to you is to do the same. Be captured by the gospel. This is a response to the gospel. This flows out of the fact that Christ came, he lived, he died in your place and for your sins and rose. That should excite you. That should be the thing that's on your lips. And you know, I get it, it's hard. I get it, it's uncomfortable. I would encourage you to be strategic about it. It's not easy. In fact, a lot of times we have to have the relational capital to effectively share the gospel. Um, I've got a friend who's British. Um, he works over at the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And if you haven't been paying attention, you know, New England's a postmodern culture. They're way more postmodern. You know, and he talks about the fact that we need to be strategic in sharing the gospel because if, if we start to share the gospel right out of the gate, people aren't going to give us a hearing. And so he talks about how we approach um, sharing the gospel through what he calls the lens of the four tables. Um, if you can put that slide up. Um, he says that you know, relationships kind of slot into tables. You think about a work table. What happens there? You chit-chat about sports, the weather, work stuff. You don't go deep. You don't share your heart. Now what happens if you meet somebody and you want to get to know them a little? You know, say you're a 22-year-old man and you meet this beautiful girl and you want to get to know her. Take her out to coffee. And you have a certain amount that you share there. And if things progress, what happens? You go to dinner, right? And there the real sharing of your heart happens. But that's actually how all relationships work. You get to know friends. You talk about things at the soccer field or the baseball field or the basketball court or whatever it is your kids are into. And then you maybe end up bumping into somebody and you spend a little bit more time with them. And then eventually they're over at your house and that's where the real sharing goes. And eventually the goal of all our relationships should be that we share who Christ is and what he's done so that all of us gather together at the Lord's table. But if you have a table three conversation at table one, they're going to get freaked out. The average New Englander is not open to hearing about the gospel the first day you meet them. It's interesting. As a pastor, you kind of get a little bit of a pass on this. And people hear what you do, and they're like, oh, well, I guess we're going to do this. <laughs> but generally... 
it goes slow. And we have to be okay with that, but be strategic in doing so and making sure that we do. Because it's a natural and right response to the gospel. And I would say, to not is actually an act of cruelty. If we know the other side of the gospel, the flip side of John 3.16, is that whosoever does not believe will not be saved, to not share the gospel is an act of cruelty, right? I think we can agree on that. And so we need to be people who are willing to share the gospel. We need to say, yes, it's going to cost me something, but the gospel is so rich and so deep that it is too powerful not to share. All of these are marks of health. All of these things that we see are marks of health. And all that leads us to some takeaways. Again, this is my first time with you. So my encouragement to you, first of all, as you think about this passage, and you think about these marks of a healthy church that you see here, my encouragement to you first is just ask, are these things present in the life of our church? And where do they need to grow? I'm sure if I was to ask Rennie, okay, which things are here, which things aren't? He would probably be able to tell me exactly where you guys need to grow. As a pastor of First Baptist, I knew exactly where we needed to grow. I'm sure he does too. But just ask yourself that question. Be a church that's asking yourself that question. How do we develop these marks? How do we work to see these things present? But then with that, I would say, you know, in a room this size, with a group this large, there's some of you that are probably here that know that don't know Christ. Some of you are teenagers. You're thinking it through. My encouragement to you is think it through. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 15 to 20 years after Christ rose, 500 people saw him alive. Peter here, the apostles burst out and they announced Christ rose. If that is true, that changes everything. If that is true, it's the most rock-solid thing you can look to and place your faith in. If that is true, if Jesus Christ is the Son of God risen from the dead, the natural and right response is to go, in the words of Anne, can it be, oh my God, you found out me, is to trust Christ. Peter's challenge here, Peter's call to every single person that's listening is repent and be baptized. It's a call to trust Christ. And so the, this passage is an invitation, a challenge. If you don't know Christ, trust him. If you do, seek to be people that are centered and shaped by the gospel. And the gospel changes everything. It changes how we relate to one another. It changes how we respond when somebody wrongs us. You know, what's going to happen in fellowship? You're going to spend time together, and then what's going to happen? Somebody's going to bother you. And then you get to learn how to forgive. Or maybe you get to learn how to go repent. Maybe you're the person that does something wrong, and you have to learn how to humble yourself, remembering that Christ stepped out of heaven and humbled himself and became a man. 
The gospel changes how we engage. Be people that are centered and shaped by the gospel. Be a church that's centered and shaped by the gospel. And I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I know that there's a, a membership class coming up next month. Someone said June-ish. The, God, the, the scripture never pictures lone wolf Christians. You think of what a healthy church is. You think of the level of fellowship that we're called to. We're called to be part of a life of a, the life of a church. We're called to commit and engage in the life of a church so that we will grow and they will grow. And Hebrews says that we're called to, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And then right after that in Hebrews 10, we're told to be in church, to, to not forsake the fellowship of the saints. Why? Because that's where we engage with each other and spur one another on to love and good deeds. But that takes committing to being in a church and being with people and allowing them to know you enough that they can speak into your life, which means you have to join a church. And I would say, since I'm preaching at Glad Tidings, on behalf of Rennie, I would encourage you, if you're not a member, join this one. Pray for your church. I said pray for your pastor. Pray for your church. Pray that God will use you Pray that these marks will characterize the life of this church. But then I would say this at the end. This church and every church will fail to mark, meet these marks perfectly. They will. Every church is filled with imperfect disciples, which means that every church is going to be imperfect. And so when your church fails to be marked by all of these things, go back to the gospel, go back to grace, go back to the reality that we are saved not on the basis of all of our good deeds, but on the basis of his finished work. You know, even Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. Which means that a church is going to be always having to go back and remind itself of grace. Remind itself of what Christ has done. My encouragement to you is where you look and you see this church failing to be marked by the things that are called for in Scripture, remember grace, the grace that saves us, the grace that strengthens us, the grace that saves us. Let's pray. Father God, I come before you God, I want this church to be a church that the community looks at and says, I want in. I want this church to be a church that sends people out lit up by your gospel in such a way that when they engage, the world says there's something different. God, I come before you and I pray for this church. I pray that it will be marked by hope. I pray that it will be marked by joy. I pray that this will be a church where whether you're black or white, Asian or Latino, people will walk through the door 
and say they loved me. And they showed a Savior who loved me even more than they loved me. God, may this be true of this church. May this be true of glad tidings. God, I pray that the result will be that just as the church in Jerusalem grew, that you will be adding to this church daily those who are being saved. And that the result will be that Quincy is marked by your life and your presence and your joy and a real and true glorifying of your name. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.